welcome to another episode of Obiter Dicta, Bloomsbury Professionals podcast on all things law and tax, with me, Rachel Sherlock, and also Gronya McMahon. Today we are sitting down with Christopher Lahan, author of Succession Law, his new book from Bloomsbury Professional. A practicing barrister, Christopher Lahan recently retired as an officer of the High Court where he served for 42 years, 22 of which were spent in the probate office, and 12 years as official assignee in bankruptcy. He served as Deputy Probate Officer of Ireland for eight years and Assistant Probate Officer of Ireland for five years, administering probate law in Ireland. We chatted to Chris about the do's and don'ts when it comes to probate law, Section 117 applications, and how to deal with dilatory executors, among other topics. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Chris. It's wonderful to have you. And congratulations on your new book, Succession Law. Can you tell me about the book and how it came about? Well, I've, I've just retired after 42 years working in the public service. I was 22 years in the probate office, 12 years as official assignee. So I've gained a lot of practical experience of personal estate law. Uh, I've also been consultant on probate in the law society for 15 years and lectured in executorship law in Griffith College for 11 years. So I built up equally an awful lot of notes around the personal estate uh, law and property law in general. So the combination of that, it was always my intention at some stage to write a book. So I had a lot of manuals from the teaching, effectively, colleagues in the probate office and in the uh, from teaching, obviously, the notes and the manual. So it all came together and it was, um, I'm, I'm very happy that it's finally finished. Yeah, it's a great achievement. And did you enjoy writing the book? I did enjoy writing the book. I mean, it was four years in the writing and it was very intense. But again, going back to the fact that I was using manuals, in many ways, it was like a, a 42-year uh, project. But uh, I did enjoy it. And in fact, when, you, when you're writing something and you have to get the accuracy right, you have to do a lot of research to batten down the detail and case law. So I equally learned a lot. I mean, the, in writing the book, I've read legal textbooks and I find them very difficult to understand and from students and even for busy practitioners. So I really set out to explain this in plain, simple English. So I built on my experience. So when it was come to technical areas, I was able to understand them from a practice perspective. So I was able to break down the law and I hope and I believe practitioners will find the book very practical down to the lowest level and given the level of templates and guidelines and model notes that's in the book it should be a very practical read for for any solicitor's practice and particularly for equally for students. Chris lovely to chat to you today the ex-president of the High Court, Mr. Peter Kelly, was very complimentary of your book in his foreword to it. And he said that he was taken aback at the wide-ranging and in-depth coverage of the book. You must have been delighted with that. Well, obviously, to have someone like Peter Kelly praise the book to the extent he did made me very humble and very honoured. What he says in his foreword convinces me that I think I've achieved what I've attempted to set out. Because when I wrote the book, I didn't just write a succession law book. I wrote a book that any practitioner doing succession law 
because the nature of succession law, personal estate law, it straddles all areas of law. And so the book has separate chapters outside the mainstream what would be regarded as a succession law book. So it has things, it has a chapter on conveyancing, the registration of title. It has a chapter on trust law, on conflict of laws. Uh, on will writing. So it, it covers many areas that wouldn't be regarded as mainstream succession law. So it's a what I'd like to regard it as a one-stop authority for practitioners, probate practitioners, because they don't have to get a trust law book. They don't have to get a will writing book. They won't have to get a conflict of law book, land registry book and registry deeds. Hopefully they'll find everything in there. Yeah, as you said, it covers such a, a huge range of things. What did you find was the most difficult part of the, the writing process? Well, when you're writing a law book, you have to be absolutely accurate. You appreciate that it, it may well be referenced in case law in, in, before the court. And obviously, ideally, a, a book, if it's written on a subject, should reduce the need for petitions to go to court where you have somebody who can be recognised as, as an authority on it and gives clear case law, it may well be. So it, it's a, there's a high onus on you to make sure that it's absolutely accurate. So getting that fine detail, going into the cases, pinning down the basis exactly that the judge actually made the decision is important, rather than taking a view. You have to be absolutely accurate. So that was probably the most time-consuming part is research and case law. And when you find one case, there's a mine of information within that case or referencing previous cases. So you go back then to those previous cases and you get nuggets of authority. So, and that's one thing I've done in the book. I have quoted very liberally the judgment. So you don't just get the dicta of the case, the reasoning upon which the judge, but you've got the whole basis upon which he came to form that decision. And that is very helpful for me when I was in practice uh, as a fiscal need trying to understand the law and uh, very important for practitioners to be able to get the wider perspective on the case. Chris, um, I suppose you've a huge wealth of experience and you're now a barrister. And congratulations on that too. But one of the, the questions that we wanted to ask was, what are the most common mistakes that practitioners make when they're dealing with probate matters? Okay, well, I'd give three examples. One is losing a will. Uh, the second would be making sure that when you're drafting a will that you draft it correctly. And the, the third would be dealing with what is new really in probate, which is these charges that are coming against the states where people are signing up to the fair deal scheme and they're committing to putting charges in their state. So when you are the executive of a state that you don't administer the state until you absolutely find out is there a liability to the HSC and foot of uh, nursing home care that the deceased would have gotten his lifetime. So if I was to turn to the first one, lost wills, I mean, it, it comes back to this thing of trying to make sure that you are very precise uh, because in, a, in everything you do and say recording when a person makes a will, recording where the original will has been sent. 
because the big issue when a person dies is where's the original will. And if it hasn't been established from your records that you gave the original will out to the testator as a practitioner, the assumption is that you retain the original and you should have records within your office saying, I gave it to them, I retained a copy or I retained the original. And even it is not the worst scenario that you've lost the will, at least established that it wasn't in the possession of the testator because the problems arise where a will is lost in the possession of a testator. There's a presumption that a will lost in the possession of a testator is presumed to have been destroyed with the intention of revoking. And there's a case, Welsh v. Phillips, I think it's 1836, where the court uh, found that the person had effectively, um, because it was lost in possession, it couldn't be found on death, it was presumed to have been destroyed. And the, the three proofs for a lost will is that you prove that the will was in existence after death, the original. You prove that the will was duly executed. And you prove the authenticity of the copy, which means that if there's a secretary in the office who photocopies wills and put them in the will safe, she'd swear an affidavit covering that she can swear that the copy that they had was made by her and is a true and accurate copy of the original. Due execution is done by affidavit of testing witness, by a witness. And then proof of it that the will was in existence after death is always the hardest to prove. Because if you can prove it's in the solicitor's office and was never in the possession of the testator, this presumption that a will has been lost in that person's possession with the intention that they destroyed it doesn't arise. So there, there's actually a couple of cases on that. And the... The Welsh Phillips case is the main case, but in Rehealy 2021, IHC 49, Butler found that the plaintiff had failed to prove that the will was in existence after that. Another case is Thomas Delahunty, again, very modern case, 2021, IEHC 657, where Judge Butler found that the will... Uh, if it is not lost in the possession of the testator, there's no onus on the solicitor to prove that the will was in existence after death. Because it, the solicitor was able to say, look, it was in my office, all he had to establish and prove that he never gave it back to the testator and his records showed so showed and the court says well look the fact that you can't establish the reasons that doesn't arise because it never went back to the testatrix so this presumption doesn't arise so they were able to prove the will in terms of the copy another issue that arises within case law is that you have to prove that because it's a presumption that the person intended to revoke the court can say, well, look, there may be other evidence uh, that the person didn't intend to die intestate. And in a case of Remary McDermott, 2015, IEHC 622, Baker found that there was circumstantial evidence that the testator didn't intend dying intestate. And the court accepted that evidence to rebut the presumption that she had destroyed it with the intention of revoking it, and the court proved a copy. And then the final case that we're going to deal with, which is Re Carmel Corton, 2015, 
i.e. HC623. Baker dealt with the other thorny issue that can arise when you're dealing with this presumption that the person destroyed it with the intention of revoking it when its last was in her possession. And that is, what is the position in relation to proving that the person had the testamentary capacity to have the to actually form the intention to revoke. So take for instance if a will was lost in the possession of the testator and the person will say very quickly afterwards became of unsound mind, there will be a very small window, even though the will is lost in her possession, that she could have formed the intention. But in the case there of, of the court, there was a the judge found that there was a 22 year period where it was proven that it was in her possession. She had testamentary capacity. And within that 22 year period, she may well have formed the intention to destroy it. And the court refused probate of the will, applying the presumption that the woman had destroyed it with the intention of revoking it. And the other important part of that case is that the judge said that there is the onus on the person to seeking to rely on the presumption of destruction to prove that there was this period within which she was sound and could form validly the intention to revoke. So there, that, that is the first topic, the topic of uh, presumption uh, of, uh, what do you say, the difficulty in relation to proving lost wills. The second one topic that I cover, which is obviously people go to a solicitor and expect professional service. They expect when the solicitor draws up a will that he's going to draw it up properly. It's important, and I've since I've gone to the bar, even not on my the 22 years that I served in the probate office, I have seen wills that haven't been properly executed. So the, the, the first thing about making a will is the tester can sign the will in the presence of two witnesses, the two witnesses sign back in his presence. The second he can do is he can sign the will in one room, walk into the room with the two witnesses, show them the will, and acknowledge his signature to the two witnesses, and then they sign back in his presence. That is a second form that a testator can sign or can acknowledge his will in the presence of two witnesses. Another situation is that, and it's not known, but it shouldn't obviously be practiced, but if it does happen, a will is not invalid by virtue of it, is that the joint presence is necessary when the testator signs or when the testator acknowledges the signature in the presence of two witnesses, not when the two witnesses sign in his presence. So to give the example, if the testator signs in the presence of two witnesses, one witness can then leave the room and the witness that's remaining can sign the will in the presence of the testator the testator stays in the room all the time, we need him, and then the witness who was there walks out of the room and the other witness comes back and signs in the presence of the testator, that is still a perfectly executed will in accordance with Section 78 of the Succession Act. One problem arises is where a person believes that the witnesses, when they're witnessing the will, can witness different forms of effectively signature or acknowledgement by a testator. 
Now, this sounds a bit complicated, but if I give an example, I'll explain it. And it's a case that I actually have at the moment, where a testator went out to a farmer, brought the will with him, got the testator to sign it in his presence. His secretary hadn't yet arrived. When the secretary arrived, he got the testator to acknowledge his signature in the presence of both of them, and just the secretary signed the will. That is an invalid attestation of, of by the witnesses, because what should have happened is, while the solicitor had already signed the will, he had only signed it in witnessing of the signature. He didn't ever sign again witnessing the acknowledgement because that was the only attestation that had taken place by the testator in the presence of two witnesses. And the will is void and the solicitor is uh, liable and negligent. So there are the dangers. And then the third example I'd give would be the HSE. <clears throat> the HSE now uh, in under the fair deal scheme are putting in um, charges on estates so uh, to the extent that the people don't contribute towards the 80 percent of the pension is contributed and if there is an balance that is not being contributed that forms uh, the person who's going into the north scheme signs up that that extra mounting liability per week will be a charge on that person's house uh, for a maximum of three years. And the danger for a legal person representative is that when they're swearing the um, SA2, the schedule of assets, there is a box there that says, is there any liability to the HSE? And the legal person representative will take the box, admitting it, and then it goes through the process of, of extracting the grant. And when they've extracted the grant, they should give a copy of the schedule of assets. Under the Nursing Home 2009 Act, there is a requirement that the uh, legal person representative serve a copy of the schedule of assets on the HSC and, and, and wait three months. But the, problem and I have this in a case at the moment where the person representative did everything correctly. They notified them, they signed the box on the schedule of assets that the person, that they had, there was a liability. They uh, contacted the HSC, gave them a copy of the schedule of assets. They actually waited for 17 months and they never heard back about a liability. And they went on to fully administer the estate and the HSC, 17 months later, wrote back saying uh, there's a bill and they said, look, we've administered the estate. And they said, we're going against the person representative personally because not only are you required to serve the schedule of assets on the HSC, you're also required to give them notice that you intend to administer the estate. And the HSC picked on that, it's section 27.2 of the 2009 Act, that they never got that final notice that they went, they were now going on to administer. And notwithstanding that 17 months had elapsed, they still, the personal representative is still personally liable. They 
asked for permission for the solicitor to accept service of proceedings, uh, which would seem to be very unfair. But when you look at the Act, uh, six, Section 46 of the Act, it is very robust. There's a six-year limitation period from the date that they serve notice of the liability on you. So the statute of limitations only runs from six for runs from the date of the demand of the contract debt. So I advise in the case, look, clearly they still have a right to sue the estate. The fact that it's being administered, there was only twenty five thousand, the estate was seven hundred and twenty five thousand paid the HSE. They were getting advice that the HSC just roll over and do nothing. But with such a huge amount of an estate and with a huge amount of the debt was only 25,000, it, it was, I advise, just simply pay up. They will be years in the future still be able to sue. So they're the types of situations that practitioners should be. I suppose because uh, probate is 95% an administrative function, a non-court. The best advice I give, as I do when I give CPD, is accuracy in detail when you're doing forms. It's primarily an administrative function. A lot of it is preparing papers to the probate office. And I know there's a lot of frustration with practitioners about the delays in the probate office, and there are, and they should be dealt with. Equally, if more practitioners took more effort in getting more concise completion of the forms, it would reduce the queries and the delays would actually reduce and obviously you would get your grant first time out rather than having to have it sent back to you and going back. So the best advice is accuracy in the completion of details. Uh, just take that extra moment and this is where I think my book will be really helpful. It goes into checklists before you drop the papers in, exactly how you draft the papers, uh, model titles on how you draft it, uh, model letters that you would send to, say, doctors, and also affidavits that you would have to do when things go wrong. So I do think the book will be helpful in getting, in assisting practitioners speed up the probate system. Thanks, Chris. That's been hugely insightful. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about how you would deal with a dilatory executor? It seems to be a very common and frustrating occurrence. Yeah, well, as I said earlier, the first thing I'd have to find out is what is the nature of the delay? Uh, there are long delays in the probate office and district probate registries, so it may well be that the executor himself is not at fault. So, but on the basis that you're dealing with an executor who is doing nothing, sometimes they might have an agenda. They may have felt they should have got everything and uh, they are sitting in the house and they don't want to administer the estate that might actually have, you know, divided the house up. So on the basis that the person is genuinely dragging their heels, there are various procedures in the probate office uh, and you won't even have to go to court to effectively give them push to get them to take out the grant. The first would be issuing a citation. This is a, a document that's issued from the probate office or to file a caveat first, and it's issued, you, so you draft the papers, you bring it into the probate office, so the probate office signs it, and it's basically a direction to the executor to uh, lodge an appearance to the citation and to extract a grant of probate or a grant of administration. And if we deal with the executor, if where there's a will, if the executor doesn't prove the will, you can go back 
at the end of 14 days say, look, there's no appearance to this citation, set aside the rights of the executor. And if you are the next person entitled to prove the will, and that's where if you're a petitioner, the first thing you need to know is there may be a beneficiary came to you and said, look, I want this will approved. But you need to know that you've got the next person available to be able to take out the grant if you set aside the rights of the executor. Um, and if we say your client, it'd be perfect, was the residuary legatee and FIZ, after the executor's rights is set aside, he's the next person entitled to prove the will. So you would get the rights of the executor set aside by order of the probate officer, and then you would lodge your papers and then you could prove the will. If the executor, however, files an appearance to citation but doesn't go on to actually extract the grant, there's the equivalent of what is effectively like a second citation, a successive citation. It's called a 14-day order. You can get from the probate officer, you swear an affidavit saying, I issued a citation. He filed an appearance, but he still hasn't gone on and taken out the grant. The probate officer will issue the equivalent of what it's called a 14-day order. It's, it is... Uh, equivalent of a second citation which says okay you, you lodge an appearance you didn't take out the grant now if you don't take out the grant we're going to get your rights set aside and if he doesn't take out the grant within the 14-day period or files the papers at least in the probate office to do that then the probate officer similarly will issue an order setting aside his rights of executor and then your client the residual legatee and devisee can can take out a grant and thanks very much for that. Can we also talk about Section 117 applications? It takes up a large part of your book and the courts have taken various approaches to them. Can we talk about some of the significant cases here that practitioners should be aware of? What Section 117 is basically is that while a spouse has a right to a fixed share, so if a man makes a will and he doesn't leave his spouse or his children property, the wife under Section 111 of the Succession Act, has a fixed right. She either gets half the estate, it reduces it. It's not an attack on the will as such. It simply reduces the estate that a person can leave by will. He can only leave half his estate. And if there's children, it would be a one-third share she would only be able to take out the estate, reduce the estate by. But when we're dealing with children, Unlike the spouses was a fixed fraction, a half or a third, when you're dealing with a child, they have only got a right to apply to court under Section 117 of the Succession Act for the court to consider, has the testator failed in his moral duty to make adequate and just provision for the child? And if the court finds they've made that the testator, parent, has failed to make such adequate and just provision, it can award an amount out of the estate could be half or could be third, but there's no right to a fixed fraction. It's only in the discretion of the judge as to what. And the judges and all the cases show that the judges have to consider all of the children, all of the obligations, including conduct of the person. And particularly, is there another child who's more deserving? Because in a lot of these cases, one person may have got it all, he may have been the child who stayed down on the farm, worked the farm, gave up his education. So it is important that a court and these all the case law approved the various criteria that a court will consider uh, when deciding 
is this child applicant before us entitled to something out of the estate when the parent clearly believed that he had an obligation to his other child and gave. So uh, that is what Section 117 uh, is about. That's what it does. And there's been various cases over the years where the courts have clarified what exactly they are prepared to uh, consider and also the standard that a person must reach to avail, to be able to prove that they have an entitlement. And I will, we'll probably start at the, the case, which is AIC versus uh, AIC, where the court found that there's a high onus of proof on a child who's over 18 uh, not only must that child prove that there was a failure to make out a conjunct provision, but if the child is over 18, they have to prove also that they actually have a financial need, which is significant. One of the most dangerous things about Section 117 is that the time period is short for you as a practitioner to be able to make a claim. The time limit for claims is six months after you must make your claim within six months of the issue of a grant. So if you're a practitioner, you should be very careful because obviously some people might come and it could be five months. You have to be instantly saying, has a grant been taken out in, in the estate? Instantly going on to the probate office and finding because you may immediately have to get your counsel, issue proceedings within a day, two days. So the main thing is practitioners have to be careful that uh, once instructed that they act quickly because if they fail to act and the person, a bit like being instructed in relation to a personal injury action, you issue the proceedings uh, after the statute of limitation period, you will be sued for negligence. So that's the first thing. And the time limits are very rigid. In MPD versus MD 1981 ILM 179, Carol said that the time limits go to jurisdiction. Court has no discretion to widen the, the to extend the, the six month period. Uh, and in LC versus HS 2014 IEHC 32, Clark held that Section 127 of the Succession Act, which extends the disability provisions of the statute of limitations, uh, in where there are claims in relation to the estate, doesn't apply to Section 117. So what would normally happen is if the child is under 18, it is extended until they're 18, if they're, if they're suffering a disability until the disability ends, which is very helpful when you're dealing with a vulnerable person and a person who won't have their own um, capacity be able to bring the claims that's extended until they effectively regain their capacity. But it doesn't apply here. So they, a disabled child is equally subject to this six-month time limit. Um, Judge Kearns in XC versus RT 2003-2IR250 effectively extrapolated from case law all the principles that a court should take into consideration when making an application. And he found 17 principles. And in my book, I distill those 17 down to six because the, some of them are very similar. And then I add two. So there is a comprehensive 
coverage of all of the principles. And I believe that I've even simplified uh, Judge Kern's we'll say guidelines to judges so that it is even simpler because I categorize them together when they're similar. And I summarize not only the principles, but I also give a checklist. So if you are instructors in relation to section 117, it's a very tick box of, you know, six months since the grant is issued, you know, what assets has my client got what is the total estate which is will be really helpful for, for practitioners in dealing with section 117 and the last case i'm going to deal with is a case of gs versus mb 2002 iehc 65 where notwithstanding the supreme court has raised a very high bar for adult children who are not in financial need to be successful. The judge has actually, we'll say, rolled back, in my view, the, the, the very high bar, and uh, given the particular, as she found, unusual circumstances that existed in this particular case. And this is a particular case where there was a woman who was quite wealthy, who gave her child up to parents who were not at all as wealthy as she was. They reared him. The mother did nothing at all to provide any provision for the child. And when she died, she left all her will to nephews and nieces. And the court found that in the particular circumstances of that case, the child, notwithstanding that he himself had two houses and was wealthy enough asset-wise, um, having regard to the particular circumstances, his particular circumstances, he st still had discharged the uh, high onus placed them by the AIC Supreme Court case that the testatrix had failed in a moral duty towards him. And the criteria that she felt um, significant were, was, one, she was a wealthy person. She had the capacity to be able to care for the child or at least provide support, and she'd done nothing. Secondly, the child, while he had financial uh, assets, he had a disability uh, which would reduce, he had a personality disorder for 10 years, which reduced his earning capacity going forward. And I think the most significant uh, aspect of it was that she found that none of the people who had inherited had any dependency on the woman, had even a close relationship with her. So there was a, a kind of a particularly, because a judge will always have regard to, well, maybe the child didn't get everything, but there was another person more deserving and more dependent. Here, the court said there was no such person. The, the, the nephews and nieces who even inherited didn't even have a close relationship. So there was a, a stark case that she was able to do. Now, this opens a lot of possibilities. This opens a lot of possibilities of children being put into foster homes. There's a lot of publicity around this case because this could be an opening up to Section 117. Now, whilst the case, and even there was a Court of Appeal case which had uh, followed the AIC case, the strict, you know, high bar, 
this case is a high court case, so there's no guarantee that it is going to be followed going through it. But it is also in the face of, and I know we're going to be asking another question in relation to the Law Reform Commission, it's also in the face of what the Law Reform Commission is proposing. I remember this case coming out earlier this year and I was quite astounded by it, but it, but it, it, as you said, it does open the door. In, in that case, the son was 60 years old and he got 225,000 and out of her net estate of 778,000 approximately. Were you, as a practitioner and I suppose um, your experience in the area, were you quite sh- shocked by, by the result of the case? I, I mean, particularly when you say that one of the factors was that she had no close or warm relationship with the, the nieces or the nephews. Yeah, I think a lot of practitioners are because you've got a Supreme Court case that is very clear that if the child is, you know, over 18, this child is very mature uh, uh, and doesn't have a financial need, the Supreme Court case closes the door. This case is exceptional, I believe. I, I can see that there could be an awful lot of similar cases of children being put in foster houses and the parents never looked after them. That, that is, it is the scope, the extent to which that if this case becomes law, there could be a considerable number of Section 117 applications. And I suppose I'm equally surprised at the case, and I'm not saying that I don't agree with it, because you've got a Supreme Court case that would bind you to having effectively saying, well, look, you're over 18, you don't have financial need on the terms of the AIC Supreme Court decision and even court of appeal decision since and other many high court cases. It's against the stream. And it's also particularly against the Law Reform Commission. The Law Reform Commission have come out and they have made recommendations uh, for the reform of Section 117 to make it even harder than the uh, AIC bar. Uh, so, you know, if you would like me to deal with yeah, the law well, I, I was actually going to ask you um, about their report on, on Section 117 and what did you make of the recommendations in that report? Yeah, well, I mean, probably with the most controversial recommendation they make is that if a child is over 18, there's a presumption that he has adequately been provided for. So he has to prove, and and then it not only states that, so he has to, the the onus is on him, there's a presumption that he already has been financially uh, provided for. And it actually limits greatly the grounds upon which you can rebut that presumption. One, you have to prove financial need. Two, you have to prove that the uh, item that you're looking for is of a sentimental nature, right? So it's just quite limiting. You can't say the family home is of a sentimental nature. I'm sure people would like to believe that. Uh, and the only other ground is that you are a bit, to go back to an example I gave earlier, that you have given up your career you've stayed on the farm or you've stayed in the business and therefore you've compromised your earning capacity and your wealth for the benefit of your father on the basis, or mother, uh, on the basis that you would get the farm and you would get the business. So uh, there was a big uh, annoyance, we'll say, and and, uh, 
there is almost a lobby against that provision going through because it is quite punitive. It, it is very limiting. It is rolling back what Section 117 is considerably because you're effectively not giving a right to simply apply to court. You're making it very difficult for an adult child to make a claim and you're limiting greatly the grounds upon which he's entitled to rebut the presumption that he's already provided for. So this is totally in the face of, we'll say, the stack judgment and Judge Stack would have known of that the Law Reform Commission recommendation at the time. So um, while the stack judgment is significant, if the Law Reform Commission comes in, the law will be applied and the stack decision will, would be, um, obviously the courts have to apply the law and the stack decision wouldn't be as, you'll say, fruitful and promising for future Section 117 applications. I mean, other changes the Law Reform Commission made was to enable uh, Section 117 application being made in an in an intestacy situation. It can only be made when a person has left a will and failed to make adequate and just provision in his will. Because when a person dies intestate, if to say five children, all five equally get, if there's no parent surviving, all of the estate. Whereas in a 117 application in an intestacy situation, it's open to the court to consider should one child, say a disabled child, not in an attested situation, get more than the other children? So that is a significant um, recommendation by the Law Reform Commission. They propose a new Section 117. Uh, other provisions is that when a court is making an award, it should only limit towards the extent there's been a failure to make out and just provision. So a lot of the trust of the amendment is to reduce the ability of people to make applications and then to reduce the amount that they would get if they're successful, which is really rolling back to letting the testator consider the views of the testator and try and effectively reduce Section 117 applications going forward, whereas at the same time, it actually expands Section 117 into intestacy cases. Another, another provision, which is a more minor provision, is that it, it asks that the court consider, when making a decision, the facts only as existed just before the death of the deceased, so that the testator will have, you know, it gives a reasonable foreseeability test because sometimes, and currently happens within the case, it's very, when the court is coming to consider when it should um, uh, judge the estate and the amount of the share that the child is actually getting, look as of the date of death, but with kind of, I call it in the book, a Yoda scope that actually allows you to look into the future that when the case is actually before the court to see what he actually got. Because some of the cases that a testator may actually believe that he's made adequate and just provision, but things like in one of the cases, it was a massive estate duty bill came in that he didn't appreciate, greatly reduced the amount that would go to the residual legatee and FSE. And in that case, when he, he considered and he made his will, it seemed substantial what he was giving the child. But in, when the estate was being administered, 
it was a, a very small uh, gift indeed. So they're the main provisions, and it is, I think it's about three or four, two, two or three years old. So some Law Reform Commission reports sit on the shelves and go nowhere. It remains to be seen whether there's political will to now enforce this recommendation by the Law Reform Commission and uh, yeah, there's a lot of people animated by its ter- by some of its terms, particularly the one of uh, effectively making a presumption against a child over 18 having a right to make the application. Can we talk about the many risks for LPRs failing to administer estates correctly and indeed for practitioners advising them where creditors and beneficiaries are not paid in accordance with the strict order of priority set out in the Succession and Bankruptcy Acts? How do we avoid those risks? Right. Well, obviously, the the first thing to say about any person representative, whether a person died in test state and, say, a child in next kin taking out a grant, or as an executor taking out the grant, is that it is an onerous duty. You have an awful lot of work involved, an awful lot of potential legal issues you may have to understand, get legal advice on. The other side of it is you don't get paid. You're not entitled, unless you're a solicitor and you can put in a professional charging clause, all your work, all you're entitled to is out-of-pocket expenses, what you've actually spent Right. So the courts view the the role as, you know, unless the legal person representative is grossly negative, minor acts of negligence, they won't find him liable. Clearly, the uh, onus is on him to understand the act, to get properly advised on its provisions. And it particularly fraught is, and unfortunately, the way we've had a lot of bankruptcies and a lot of insolvency of individuals. There are a lot of states where when it comes to administering it, it's very important for the uh, executor and the person, the legal person representative, the administrator, to know before he starts, you say, giving a share to a child, that there's enough assets to pay all the debts. Because the first duty of, of a legal person representative is to pay the debts. Only when all of the debts have been paid can he start distributing the estate. So if you're in doubt as to whether the estate is solvent or insolvent, you should assume it's insolvent and apply the assets. First of all, discharging the debts in accordance with the Succession Act. And when it comes to an insolvency estate, Section 46 of the Act applies It's the first schedule of the Bankruptcy Act that is applied, so the order of application of assets to pay debts. So when a person dies and his estate is insolvent, it means that his assets are insufficient to pay all the debts. It is still solvent, even if he can't pay all the gifts he left. So once the assets are sufficient to pay all the debts, the estate is solvent, if it is not got sufficient assets to pay all the gifts, it is still solvent because they can still pay all the debts. And that's what solvency of an estate is. While a beneficiary where the estate is insolvent gets nothing, a creditor uh, will always have a forced entitlement to have his debts paid. So it can be 
that where the uh, estate is solvent and there's non-sufficient assets, a beneficiary will be very concerned of the order of application of assets to pay the shares because there is a strict order of what's called abatement of legacies. So take, for instance, if daddy had 10 euro and he had 2 euro in debts and he'd 8 euro to divide amongst his children and 8 of them were getting a share each uh, but, but the, he left 10 children there would have to be what's called a pro rat abatement of everyone's share to obviously pay all the debts so and following the order of payment if there's a will and it goes through that at the at the start, when you're dealing with the various shares, and we say if you take a will, that the a residuary estate should first pay all of the debts, and then it goes into general legacies, and then it goes to within general legacies is demonstrative legacies where the fund within which out of which the they will say two hundred out of my AIB account, and if he only had one hundred in his AIB account, there's, there will be a 50% abatement of that person's share of, so we only get 100 because that's all that was in the fund to pay it. And then it goes, so the, the last to lose, if you want to put it like that, are the people who get the specific legacies. So if you get the car or if you get a specific device like the house, in the order of using the assets to pay debts, the people who get the specific legacies and the specific devices and the last people whose assets will be used to pay debts and all the persons who got general legacies and demonstrative legacies could get nothing. So knowing that there is an order, following it religiously and ensuring that you're accounting at all stages for all the monies that are going out because you're the person representative and there's only so much in the account and Johnny thinks he should get the money you have to be very clear. And in the book, not only do I do the order, the application of assets and explanation detail, but there's a whole chapter on the accounts. And there's no other book on the market that does any detail in relation to the various accounts. And there's loads of specific examples of how each gift is recorded in the accounts uh, that a, an executor has to prepare and he would provide to the beneficiaries to show that he's safely administered the estate. Chris, thanks. And uh, I, I must note your attention to detail. When we're speaking about attention to detail and let's go back to the basics, I think you do really outline in the book, um, I suppose, in terms of drafting a will and would you may, maybe just talk us through because this is one of the basics but sometimes people or practitioners get it wrong in terms of um drafting the will okay well if it's coming to drafting a will chapter 14 of the book gives 10 sample wills but with loads of variations so you can mix and match a bit like going into Woolworths years ago and you can get your bag and you can take your bits you can create the will from the template We've already covered the attestation clause that it says simply signed by the two witnesses in the presence of the testator. That's the basic thing. The next thing is then that if you have it on two pages that they're kept together 
uh, and bound together professionally so that there's not a staple, a raw staple, because that could give the impression you get a query from the probate office that something was pulled off. So people tend, if they're stapling it, they just put a red tape down the side and it's fine. I mean, in the book, when it comes to wills, because it's called Succession Law, it is the biggest chapter. On wills, there are 100 pages in chapter two, and it goes through the main requirements to make a will. It deals with testamentary capacity in huge detail, with huge cases, with sample letters to give to, to doctors, requiring them to, you know, effectively breaks the Banks v. Goodfellow case down in detail as to when you are, what is testamentary capacity. And you just send that off because obviously in order for a person to make a will, in the first instance, they have to have the capacity to make the will. The next uh, main, you know, they're called the four statutory pleas, and they're again dealt with separately with all the case law, is does the person know and understand the will, knowledge and approval of the will? Again, there's a huge chunk all the relevant cases all recited in full so a petitioner will know when a person comes in what are the requirements in relation to his knowledge and approval and, and the law society give great guidelines in relation to vulnerable testators explaining the extra requirement of, of awareness that a practitioner should have be very careful if he's taking instructions, if he's taking instructions directly from the testator, particularly not to take instructions from a person who is making himself a, a, a sole beneficiary in the will because he's negligent. He, his duty, his client, is the testator. Now, there is also, if he makes a mistake, a duty on to the beneficiaries in the will, but he must be satisfied that the person who is the testator has sound mind at the time of the execution of the will. And then the other thing is that it's properly executed. And we've covered a bit there today in relation to, you know, the signing of the will, the witnessing of the will, and that's section 78 of the Succession Act. And then the final bit that is important for a practitioner is to know that there's no duress or undue influence. And it rolls back to knowledge and approval that the person understands what's in the will and they are his wishes and that he's fully aware of all the provisions in the will. And so you need to make sure that there's no question that someone is indirectly pressurizing him. So you take him into a room on his own, sit him down, make him satisfied that there's no one told him to come here. Uh, when he's given the instructions as to what he wants in his will, there's no one else in the room. So it is genuinely his will. And he's not effectively having a daughter or a son or maybe even a stranger or a neighbour who's pressurising to make the will to leave him. One of the cases I deal with is a person had made a will. He had left uh, all his assets around his family. And when it came to the... A TV cable man came to the woman's house, drew up a will on his own computer, leaving all of his estate to him. One visit and second visit was back and she signed the will. And they were clearly able to show there that there was undue influence. And it comes down to the extent to which it really does come back to the Banks v. Goodfellow case. Did they understand they were making the will? Did they understand the assets they had? 
and did they understand the beneficiaries that they would should be expected to provide it for? Because that's all linked into the proving that the person was making his will, had the testamentary understanding to know it was his will, had also any lack of undue influence because someone was bending his back to make a will that he wouldn't without that undue influence otherwise make. And, and then the book in again chapter two goes on to how to alter a will, how to revoke a will, how to revive a will and how to construe a will. And in the book, I deal with huge, in huge detail, all the relevant cases. And when we come to the construction of the will, I cover and give really good, I believe, a bit like what uh, Judge uh, Kearns did in relation to Section 117, extrapolating the principles that the courts apply in construing a will and give a breakdown of how a court and the practitioners, obviously equally too, should construe wills wholly drawn from, obviously, the statute, Section 90 of the Succession Act, and also all the case law. Because it is such a, um, an important area, construction of wills, there's been an awful lot of cases on it, and great clarity provided by judges as to how a will should be construed. Chris, it's evident that you love this area of law, and I'm not surprised that uh, you're now practising as a barrister. But some might say, you know, after all those years in the probate office and your career in the public service, would you not just, you know, put the feet up and and chill out for a while? What made you decide to be a barrister? Well, I, I qualified the bar in 1983 and I had opportunities of going to go into practice. I had a, a guy who was doing uh, this course with me offered that he put me immediately on the panel and he was an insurance company and personal injuries was flying then and it would have been quite lucrative and it was a step up because I've no connections in law in my family but then I just got in the rut of being in the public service I'd loved I was actually working in the private office at the time and then I got married big mortgage and the, the leap out with a big mortgage and as all new barristers find, no matter how much, you, you know, whatever reputation you think you have, it takes time. You have to build relationships, you have to get in. So I, I didn't take the plunge then. Having retired and obviously having got a lot of experience, I think I could add a lot of experience at the bar. So that's basically why. And, and also, I was writing the book for four years, so it was there was kind of a process of almost leading in and I suppose COVID made retiring easy because everyone was working from home so and then when you go to the bar you're equally mainly working from home so there's it's um, it, having gone to the bar it is nothing like the experience I thought it would have been because it's still like the probate list is still totally online and, and there's a lot of efficiencies for judges and for courts and for everybody. Uh, so it, 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 it's, it's a semi-retirement. It's a career move, but a semi-retirement. Are you enjoying it, though? Are you, I suppose, you, as you say, you've a lot to, to bring to the table and a lot to offer. And it's, it's clear that you're absolutely passionate about this area of law. Well, I, yeah, I love law. I've always loved law. It's 42 years administering it. Um, when I was the official assignee, I believe particularly I was able to help people. I am proud enough to say that 
as official assignee, I never had to throw any person out of their house. I equally had a lot of challenges dealing with some difficult people for various reasons. And I faced them down. And so the beauty of law that you can be someone who can be very helpful and you can equally ensure that those persons who are, we say, in my view, flouting the law and the courts vindicated my decision in chasing them down. Uh, so it is a real means to be able to help people. And also I've helped the, le the legal profession over many years because in the probodafs and as official assignee, you'd be an expert and you'd be advising them and they'd be effectively using your knowledge to go into court. So I obviously at this stage have torn. <laughs> I'm now on the other side of the fence and um, obviously love the law and, and love getting cases and arguing them and giving opinions and going into court. It's a really interesting challenge. Thank you for that. It's been wonderful chatting to you today. To close out, we have our quick fire, lighter questions round. Um, so just to launch into those, to begin with, what do you do when you're not reading law books? Well, we've um, two lovely dogs, got them before COVID. Uh, they, they, they effectively saved us over COVID when you were locked inside, full of funds, like having two two-year-olds running around the house. So bringing them for walks and getting all the love and affection from the dogs. Um, and then I, I love sports. I, I'm a dub supporter, Pat, St. Patrick's Athletic supporter. I'm just, I'm a Spurs supporter. I was just back after watching Spurs beat Leicester 6-2 and Son got a hat-trick. So it was a great experience going to the new stadium there. And also I love, I, I love art. So when we were over in London, we were in around art galleries. So I'd like time to be able to do art, but thankfully, I suppose with the practice and with all the other things that are going on, I, I hope to find at some stage a bit of time to do painting, drawing. Yeah. That's great. And so I guess my next question is uh, three things you would bring to a desert island. Two dogs and a better say the wife, Kate, or I'll be in trouble. <laughs> That's great. And finally, if you weren't a lawyer, what would you be? Obviously, having retired after 42 years in the public service, I think the, the obvious answer is I love being a public servant. I love helping people and um, taking a lot of the bureaucracy out of it. And that really frustrates people about the public service. And I suppose I would love to be good enough to be able to draw and you see what people can do. And I have a bit of talent. And if I could get more time, I might, you know, actually do something nice. Uh, so I'd, um, I, I, I know I would never make an artist because I never make money on it because it's a very hard. But I'd, I'd, I'd certainly would love to have been an artist if, if you could afford to uh, pay your way. Thank you, Chris, for joining us today. And may we congratulate you once again on your book. It's had an amazing reaction. Anyone that I've spoken to has has said that it's an, an amazing book. Um, so I think practitioners will be delighted to read it. And thank you for your time and being so generous with all your advice today. Not at all. Thank you both very much. That's it for another episode of Obiter Dicta. Thanks to Chris Lahan for joining us on the podcast, and you can purchase his new book, Succession Law, on bloomsburyprofessional.com. It is also available to subscribers of Irish Wills and Probate Law on Bloomsbury Professional Online. Until next time, thanks for listening.